0: So we've come to Romans 9, finally. And just by way of review, part one of Romans goes all the way. You can't hear. Uh, I turned it on, but it wasn't very high. So let me get a little more volume. Is that helping at all? No, the mic's off. Is that helping at all? Yeah, yeah okay. Early. Is that good, or do you want it lower? That's great. Okay. Uh, The first major unit of the book, it really only has two parts, chapters 1 to 11 and 12 to 15, Uh, the the latter part of 15 and uh, chapter 16 are epistolary kind of material, uh, but they're not in the argument of the book. Uh, Does the word argument convey anything to you when I talk about an argument of a book? All right, let me talk to you about that just a minute. Um, We've said things like this before, so some of this can be repetitive. Repetitive? Repetition? How do you say both words at the same time? Uh, um, It was very expensive to write. It's estimated that Romans cost $2,500 to write it the first time. Um, not, Not any copies, just the first Copying of the book, first writing of the book. Uh, So you carefully planned what you were going to say. You didn't write just because. Well, I haven't written these people in a while. I think, you know, like we used to do when we used to write letters. Um, So you've planned it out carefully, and you have a purpose to accomplish it. It you may have at least you must have at least one purpose for writing. It may be to sustain a friendship yes but Paul's an apostle and as an apostle he has a purpose or purposes for writing uh, so my task as a as a student of scripture is to figure out what that purpose is and one of the ways to figure out what the purpose is is to look at the construction of the book how's it how are the ideas laid out well, I've been arguing that he's been saying that we're that we are uh, to uh, chapter fifteen, chapters fourteen and fifteen, we're to receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. Um, that the church in in Rome is suffering from the initial stages of of uh, fraction, uh, and this can't go on. The body of Christ must never. Um, violate its unity that is, is won for us, purchased for us by the blood of Christ. So if it's that valuable, then everything must be done to maintain the unity of thought and practice in the church. So we may have unity of thought, but not of practice. We may have unity of practice, but not thought. So one way or another, every, as, as is it Paul, is it not Paul, I think it is, who talks about taking every thought captive to Christ. Yes, so we've got we got to either solve doctrinal problems or practice problems or both. Um, so if you're going to spend twenty-five hundred dollars just to get it written once, then you're going to have thought this through pretty carefully, and it's going to be important enough for you to spend that money to do it. Yes, so uh, the argument of a book is what is the book's purpose. And how does it go about achieving that purpose? Um, Always when you're reading a book of scripture, think in those terms. What is this book trying to accomplish? What's its goal? And um, how is it accomplishing that goal? It's never enough to say, well, its goal is to make people love Jesus more. That may be true, but it's not sufficient. It's not specific enough to be able to say anything significant. Um, if you would just turn to Mark one, uh, we may have done this before, and I apologize if it's repetition. But this is a place where it's really, really obvious. I mean, it stands out right, right in the opening verses uh, of the book, Mark one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's all it says. No, No. The the Son of God. What does Mark think he's writing about? What what aspect of Jesus' person is he writing about? The Son of God. He's deity. Are you with me? We have we have said that Mark is writing about the servant. That's not, Mark didn't get the message. He didn't read the New Testament survey books that have been published. So, so if this is what he's writing, look at the next uh, two verses as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi first. Uh, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's not what Malachi said. Who is the one who's sending my messenger? I am the one. I, uh, uh, um, God. God is, is, is making a pronouncement here. I'm sending my messenger. In Malachi, the the text reads, Behold, I send my messenger before my face to prepare my way. Why has Mark changed the pronouns? Instead of mine, it's your. It's a capital Y. Say again? A capital Y. Capital Y. And your New King your. James, yeah. I mean, okay. I Many did. <laughs> yeah, in Malachi, but not in not in right, right. not in Mark. So so who is uh, who is he talking about? Well, the person that Mark's just introduced, Jesus Christ, who shares with. What we call the, the person we call the father he shares with him full deity and so the the I in Malachi whatever that is three is it yeah uh, three one uh, Malachi in chapter 3 talks about I and my but now the I has become a you and the you is the same person it's the same kind of person he's still God. Do you follow this? And then you have the quotation from Isaiah: "The voice of one crying in the." And these are always misaligned in our English translations. In Hebrew, "Behold, I am sending my messenger." uh, I'm sorry. The voice of one crying. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's not crying in the wilderness. This is the voice of one making a proclamation. In the wilderness, make a way for the Lord. Are you with me here? That's the way it's set out in in Isaiah, in Hebrew. So who is this one who is coming? Jesus Christ. Yeah. But how is he described in the quotation from uh, Isaiah? He's preparing the way of the Lord. Okay, so this person, Jesus, is the Lord. Yes? Mm -hmm. Well, how would Lord be printed in Isaiah 53, or 50? (laughs) 40 <laughs> I'll get it out right in a minute. Yeah. How would Isaiah, how would, Isaiah how, how would it be printed there? Well, you do know the answer. All caps. All caps. So, so, who is this person? Yahweh. Yahweh. So, the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Yahweh. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. We, we, we read this, this is well known, and if you've heard the Messiah, Uh, The voice of one who crieth in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord We know these verses But the more we know them, the less we know them Because we haven't thought about them So this quotation is saying Jesus is God And the rest of the book Is demonstrating that Jesus is God Uh, One of the climactic statements Chapter 3 Verse 1 to 6 You have the man in the synagogue With a withered hand What does Jesus do to heal the man? This is the Sabbath day. What does Jesus do to heal the man? Tells him to stretch it out. But Jesus didn't do anything. Is Is it a violation of the Sabbath to say, stretch out your hand? Is it a violation of the Sabbath to stretch out your hand? No. No. Is it a violation of the Sabbath for the man to stretch out his hand? No. No. So, who healed the man? God. God. And then you read in verse 6, and going out, the Pharisees immediately with the Herodians uh, took counsel to see how they could destroy him. Whose enemies are they? Gods. Do do you follow what I'm saying? Uh, This is the inciting moment of the book. That's where the story begins, where where the conflict begins. Now look at chapter sixteen, verse eight. I, I, for reasons I don't want to take time to discuss today, um, Mark 16, yeah, still in Mark sixteen, eight. I take sixteen, eight as the actual original ending of the book. Um, there are lots of reasons for that. I don't want to go into it today. It's too much discussion it would take us too far afield. Sixteen, eight. Sixteen, eight. Um, So, uh, and uh, the women going out fled from the tomb for trembling and amazement had taken hold of them and they told no one for they were afraid what what kind of ending is that for a gospel thus there are uh, three actual endings (laughs) that have been suggested for the book and we're not going to discuss that I just the, the, the evidence leads me to conclude that 16.8 is the end of the book well what kind of ending is that? well one of the things that you've got to understand in the book is your goal is not simply to reveal Jesus as son of God there's a purpose for that so every book of the Bible has a theme and a purpose does that make sense? Right. so I've not said enough so back to our quotation from 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine that would be the theme for, for reproof uh, instruction how does it go correction. Correction. for reproof correction and instruction in righteousness that would be the purpose my task in any book is to discover not only the theme but the purpose Oh, what's the what does sixteen eight tell us about a purpose for the gospel of Mark? They told no one. They were terrified. Is that is that the way they should have responded? Get no response from you, you're all hiding your faces <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you don't have to answer I, think, I found i think part of the fear would be that they would uh, think other people would consider them a little yeah crazy. but they're they're not sure they're not crazy the lord revealed Himself to his disciples yes many, many but not yet not at all in mark right but he but he said that uh, don't tell anyone i know but but my point is is this the right response A natural response. Yes, it's a natural response, but it is is yes, the right one. Probably not the right. No. Oh, well, what is the right response? They should have been telling people. Yeah joy, yeah. joy. Here's the point. Joy. The beginning and the end. See, the end is what the beginning is leading to. <laughs> exactly. See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. <laughs> I know great wise things most people don't know. So, if the beginning is what the end, I'm sorry. If the end is what the beginning is leading to then i've got to say well why all that in the middle well who in the gospel of this is an unfair question because you haven't been reading mark perhaps recently and you haven't been thinking about it but but who in the gospel of mark responds appropriately to jesus and this is the this is the problem all the way through the book in mark 8 uh jesus says who do people say that i am and they say, well, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, for once, got it right. You are the, you are, I forget whether he says you're the Messiah or you're the Holy One of God. Can't remember which he says. Art say Thou art the Christ. Say again? Thou art the Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is that true? Is. Yes. Is it enough? Did he really, be, well, yeah, he really believed that when he said it because God gave it? Gave yeah, it to him. yeah. but But is it true that he's the Christ? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Is it enough? Yes. What 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 are first century assumptions about Messiah? He's going to deliver them from the Romans. Yeah, going to raise an army. So, is it enough to say you're Christ in a book whose purpose is his its goal is for us to understand that Jesus is God? Is saying he's the Messiah enough? Yes. no because you know they don't realize that he's God yet right. okay. and there are only two stories of, of healing of blind men in the gospel of Mark one at the beginning of a unit and the other one right in connection with that in Mark chapter 8 the first one I think it's right I think it's right before the confession of Peter I can't recall in the second one he heals a man in two stages so he puts the concoction on his eyes and do you see anything yeah I see men walking but it's like trees walking and then he healed him again and he could see clearly the the apostles are like the blind man they're only half healed they see the truth they don't know they don't see it clearly in my mind, I give special consideration to these women because of the cultural differences between men and That's women. That's right. Yeah. Women were expected to be quiet. Yeah, yeah. And they were not considered witnesses, yeah. right? Yeah. But at the same time, after even considering that, when I read this, this gives me the impression they had not believed what he had said about no, well they didn't understand it. No. It's not that they didn't believe it, they just simply didn't understand it. Well, oh, what is this he's talking the about? Resurrection. To them yeah. One. So, my point is, folks. When you get to, if, if you've read Mark properly from the beginning, so, so you take chapter one, he's deity. Uh, the demons know it. <laughs> and, he's, and he tries to silence the demons. But he's deity. And he's demonstrating that all the way through the book. Mm-hmm. The disciples don't get it. So who does? And the, the great question of the book of Mark is going to be, if Jesus is God, what is the right response to him? And having gone through that, gone through Mark from 1 to 16, and concluded that as the purpose of the book, you must go back to Mark 1 and read through looking for who did respond properly to the book. And since the book doesn't give... There aren't many who respond properly to Jesus. Then you and I are part of the story of Mark. Mark because we're looking to see what the right response is and to make that right response. Do you follow this? This is, this, is a, this is incredible. This is an amazing book, frankly. And we've just kind of given it short shrift because, well, Matthew has most of it, and Mark and Luke have most of it, so if you study one of those, you've got Mark down pretty well. But not this point of the argument, not this this line of thinking. Does this make sense to you? And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the argument of a book. So, in Romans chapter, what are you thinking, Sid? You, you look a little bit overwhelmed. I am. Okay. <laughs> is, is there a question you can even frame? You should give us a little head start on this We you prepare ourselves. Yeah. Something. Well, I didn't know I was going to do it. <laughs> this is... This is I've, been, I've been looking through Romans 9. I understand. Uh, But this is what you're doing when you're you're following the author's thought. You're looking for, all right, what is he trying to what is the the goal he wants us to reach? There's something he wants us to learn, some facts he wants us to learn, the the doctrine. And then there is reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that is the purpose of the book. And so I'm I'm arguing that the book has two points, two major sections. One to eleven demonstration of God's grace received by the Romans. They have to re, they have to be taught again as who is it Is it First Corinthians or second Corinthians? I have, have to teach you again the first no, that's not, that's Galatians. I have to teach you again the first principles of, of the gospel. Um, so Paul has to take them back to, to first principles and say here's what grace is this is the way you're saved you're not saved by your works you're not righteous by your works so your eating or not eating is irrelevant to your spirituality and your division over food is sinful this do, do you see what i'm saying here uh... so he sets out this this idea of grace in chapters one to eleven then uh... then in, in so 1, 16 to eight thirty nine. Uh, right relationship with God is by faith alone. Uh, nine one to eleven, or nine nine to eleven, are then uh, crucial questions about the gospel and Israel. We pointed this out in days gone by. But um, one of the prophets at the seminary, in a in a particular situation, raised the question: Why does this material follow chapter eight? And his point was, and I think it's absolutely correct, verse 37 and 38 and 39 of chapter 8. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creation, shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Israel has been separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Is it possible that we might be too? Are you with me here? So he has to explain that Israel is not separated from the love of God. They're just set aside for the present. It's a long present. Unfortunately, but God isn't real worried about time, <laughs> as we are. Um, from Abraham to Jesus is twenty centuries. From Jesus to us is twenty centuries. Uh, that means one hundred and sixty generations have elapsed since Abraham. If you put it that way, there are only 160 people who stand between you and Abraham. Okay. So, um, so if it's taken 4,000 years to get to this point, if it took 2,000 years to get from Abraham to Jesus, yes, the present is fairly extensible. <laughs> yeah. So, the the issue now is going to be. What about Israel? It looks like they've been separated from God. So, what are we going to say about this? Is is this falsifying Paul? What you're saying? If if God saved Israel, Old Testament Israel by faith, most of us don't believe that. Most of us believe that Israel was saved by law, and they certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we we speak of Israel in this. Are we what? What are we? Who are we talking? About? <laughs> The descendants of Abraham through Abraham—I'm sorry—through Isaac and Jacob, and any proselytes through birth or through faith through birth. Okay. As as will become clear very soon. Uh, look look in chapter eleven. Uh, crucial passage in this whole passage. Uh, let's see. We're um, verse 11, 11, 11. Well, eleven one. I say then, God has not cast off His people, has He? Of course not. For I am an Israelite. Why? Because he's a Christian. No, because he's of the tribe of Benjamin. All right. So, verse eleven. I say then, they have not stumbled so that they should fall, have they? Who is the they? Israel. Israel. Church? The church as Israel or or Israel? Israel. 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 The nation Israel. Um, They have not stumbled, so as the fall, have they? Of course not. But by their transgression, who's there? Israel. Israel. By Israel's transgression... um, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to stir them up to je- jealousy. Are you Israel in this verse? No. no, we're not Israel. And your salvation is intended to stir Israel up to jealousy. Do you follow? And if you follow this through, watching the, pros- the pronouns all the way through, I think you're going to conclude that um, Israel here is not church. It's ethnic Israel let me ask you a question about that do you think I? this is what I get the impression of but let me verify with you do you think that the theology that transpired mostly in Europe about the the church being the new spiritual Israel and that Israel is where God that stems from anti-Semitism right? I don't know but the, the Roman Catholic Church are, are you aware I, I was not aware of this one of my professors pointed this out you may know this but Every cathedral, every Roman Catholic cathedral, is in the shape of a cross. But uh, so you have the transept, but but then you have the 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 what do they call it? The altar at the at the front. Any preaching that that occurs is on the side. At the altar, this and, and according to the to the uh, Council of Trent. Now it's it's been modified with the the. Um, Vatican Council in the 1950s. But according to the Council of Trent, Jesus is being re-sacrificed at the altar. The layman cannot approach the altar. Only the priest, priest can. And behind the altar is a screen. And behind that is the Holy of Holies. The vestments of the priests are, de- are derived for, designed from the vestments of the Levitical priests. They believe so completely that the church is Israel, the new Israel, that everything is, is modeled on Israel. That is correct. And it goes, I don't know how far back that goes, but it goes way, way, way back. Way back. So the the issue, folks, is uh, now, it may not have been founded on anti-Semitic Semit- <laughs> Anti-Sem- Semitism. But well, they use it as an excuse Well, but but it certainly fed it. It it provided sufficient fodder for that. So what Paul is doing here is he's addressing the role of Israel in God's plan in light of what he said in chapters 1 to 8. Does this make sense? What are you thinking, Sid? I was thinking about something you said earlier. Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) All right, sorry. All right, so... Chapter nine. This is this is a a basic summary of chapters nine to eleven. In it, Israel, like the Gentiles, will receive life by faith alone. Um, I have a long quotation here in this portion of the Book of Romans. Paul must answer a basic question. He has demonstrated that the beginnings of his dealings with mankind, God has always intended that sinners relate to him by faith alone, without reference to their works. The Jew must ask the question: Paul, if this always was, has been the, God's intention, why hasn't Israel accepted the message? Why didn't Israel get it? I on Wednesday last night I started, uh, started the book of Deuteronomy, and we're, we've been studying since <coughs> the fall of 2020. Uh, is that right? Spring of 2021, I guess. We've been studying Genesis to Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights. And I started Deuteronomy last night. and I did chapters one to five. and that includes the Lord uh, the uh, Ten Commandments passage, yes. Uh, and God talks uh, through Moses a lot about obedience in those chapters. And so people were raising the question, well, you've been saying so much about faith, what's this, all this obedience going on here? And I said, well, you got to look at all of what's going on in this passage. Go read Genesis, Deuteronomy 1. And make yourself a note to read Deuteronomy 1 and look for Moses' explanation of the spiritual state of Israel as he stands before them. This is the second generation. Yes? First generation rebelled against the Lord and were, de- and were destroyed. Correct? Mm-hmm. All right? This is the second generation. This is the generation that goes into the land and takes the land and God says the way you're going to do it is by obeying me. But did they obey him? And the answer most Christians will give, well, yes, that's why he gave them the land, because they obeyed. But read but read Deuteronomy chapter one, looking for Moses' own evaluation of the spiritual state of Israel. You will be shocked. These are the folks. That are going to take the land. And then go to, Gen- to Joshua 24. And in among the, la- the in, in, in that passage, which gives us the last words of Joshua, among that, uh, with, within that message, he says, uh, You will not be able to serve the Lord. The Lord is a jealous God. He will not forgive your sins and your trespasses. Oh no, we will serve the Lord, they say. Uh, and he says, you're witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord. We are witnesses, they say. Go find that passage and read what follows. And tell me that God is looking for obedience from Israel. If they're not obedient, why did he give them the land? He knew they couldn't. He knew they couldn't. Well, yeah, but if, if they're not obedient, why did he give them the land? He yeah, but, his, but he could have done that for the first generation why did he do it only for the second he's faithful to his covenant he's faithful to his covenant and he's far more merciful than I ever dreamed yeah. I'm never going to get an obedient generation so I'm going to have to do something here now that's reasoning the way man reasons that's not the way God reasons but but you'll understand the illustrative purpose of that statement um so, in in the process of answering these questions, Paul's going to raise five issues. First issue: God has hardened unbelieving Israel. That's nine uh, one to twenty nine. This is where we have so much trouble in this passage because uh, it really brings up the doctrine of of election. And what are we to do? I want you to understand that in this passage, this is talking about the choice of Israel. Uh, I think, generally speaking, we can we can generalize it. But the primary point here is to ask the question about the status of Israel in the plan of God. So for the present, they are hardened. Second affirmation, Israel rejected God's righteousness in 30, 930 to 1021. Um, so if they've rejected God's righteousness, why should he not harden it? <laughs> And, and going back to our concept of hardening, do you remember, or, or God's handing them over in chapter one? What does that? What what do we say that meant? He withdrew, and they. Could, no, he didn't withdraw. Turned yeah. them over to their own evil desires Yeah, he 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 takes away the res, the the restraint on their will, so that they can do more of the sin, the wickedness that they want to do. So he hasn't withdrawn. He's just withdrawn restraint. Them. he's not making them worse than they were they're as bad as they turned out to be in the end all through that story but but he's restraining evil and I pointed to you pointed you to um, in Genesis Abraham at Gerar and uh, Abimelech of Gerar says why did you not tell me she was your wife I'm sorry uh, God's uh, appeared that's earlier than that. God appears to Abimelech in a dream and he says, you're a dead man, you have another man's wife. And he says, Will you, I, I, I did this in the integrity of my heart. He, didn't, he told me, she, and she told me, they were brother and sister. God says, I know you did it in the integrity of your heart. Therefore, I did not let you sin against me. So he's not hardening Abimelech. Do you follow this? He's not handing him over. So the hardening is not making good people bad. It's giving bad people the ability to be worse than they used to be. <laughs> what are you thinking, Mark? Well, you mentioned Pharaoh. I'll yeah. You like Pharaoh. Yeah. And you compared the two. Oh, yeah. 1. Yeah. In Pharaoh's case, um, he thinks he's a god. And if he's a god and has slaves, and the slaves have a god, then the, 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 the god of the slaves is his slave, too. So who is the lord that I should obey him? is the logical, right conclusion based on his worldview. Does this make sense to you? So, second, uh, Israel rejected God's righteousness in favor of their own. Uh, third, but God preserved a remnant chosen by grace. Chapter eleven, one to 11. There's always a remnant. Uh, always a remnant. Even in Elijah's day. You remember Elijah... And his, and his prayer at Mount Sinai to God um, I alone am left Moses, and God said to him I've preserved for myself 7,000 men who, who have not bowed down to Baal you remember this yes? So there's always a remnant today the remnant are uh, Jewish believers who are now in the church. Fourth God gave the promises, and it should be their promises, T-H-E-I-R. God gave their promises to Gentiles through faith. Forgiveness and relationship with God, fellowship with God. And fifth, thus he will stir Israel to jealousy, bringing them to salvation through faith. The the goal of giving the, the gospel to the Gentiles is to make Israel long for the fulfillment of their own promises that we are now receiving. Of course, the church is just making Israel jealous like crazy, amen? They see us. To this day. Israel Israel doesn't even like us. They don't see their promises lived out in us at all because as the the organizational church, we're not living them out. Right, Right after we left Israel, there were some riots going on in the Temple Mount there around the Temple Mount by the, by the Western Wall mm-hmm. the, the Jews attacking Christians oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. right there so they they, they don't see us mm-hmm. as having received the things they were promised so maybe we need this book of Romans a lot more than we thought yes, we do this might be a whole I'm sure it's another subject different subject what's the timing of that? of, of what? number 5 um, we don't, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a day coming when God will fulfill His promises. If if God has given five promises and He's forget, and He's fulfilled four of them, then can I count on the fact that He's going to fulfill the fifth? Well, that's the point here. Uh, and then you have the conclusion, adoration of God's wisdom in eleven thirty three to thirty six. Um, So first, we're going to take them in that order, those five statements. God has hardened unbelieving Israel. So chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. I I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying, (coughs) Um, my conscience bearing witness to me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great grief and unceasing, uh, do you have pain? What do you have? Anguish. Anguish. This is the word that would be used for labor pains. Odine. This is the word that would be used for labor pains. Yeah. He, he's, he's in travail. In my heart. For I could wish myself to be accursed from God, uh, a, 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 a curse from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If it would do any good, I would take their condemnation so that they be, may be saved. Um, these are Israelites. Whose are the adoption? We have the adoption now, chapter 8 said. Whose, we have their privilege. We are the children of God. Who, whose, are the, whose, whose is the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the ministry, uh, probably here at the tabernacle or temple, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom Christ the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is um, God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These are their privileges, many of which we have. So 1 to 5. Verses uh, uh, 1 and 2, 3 and 4. You you can see that if you want. Uh, Verses, now... 6 to 13, in every generation of Israel, God has made a distinction between the seed of promise, chosen by grace, and the seed of the flesh. And here's where it gets starts getting a little hard for us. It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all those who are of Israel are Israel. And here's, here's where we start getting this, this Israel church identification that people use this is not the point of the statement at all to be of Israel is to be a descendant of Jacob but not all descendants of Jacob ever have been the descendants of the promise I'm sorry I said Jacob didn't I I mean Abraham not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham has ever been an heir of the promise uh, father Abraham has many sons but in, on earth he only had two <laughs> uh, Isaac and Esau Esau is of Abraham yes? yes but he's not the one that has the promise Isaac has two sons Jacob and Esau did I say Esau before Esau. I met Ishmael? Um Abraham had Ishmael and yeah had, yeah uh, uh, Isaac has two sons Jacob and Esau are they also of Abraham? yes Yes. yes. are they of Jacob? no they're a, yes they're, they're both descendants of Jacob they're, they're sons of Jacob no. they're both of Jacob but Jacob had his name changed to Israel where does the name go? to the line of Esau or to the line of Jacob? Jacob. line of Jacob Esau's of Jacob. He's of Israel, but he's not Israel. Are you with me here? Um, Now, in subsequent generations, is every descendant of Jacob through... um, Is every descendant of Isaac through Jacob now renamed Israel? Is every descendant... Of Israel. Ethnically, yes. But not necessarily heirs of the promise. Right? How, how do you distinguish the two? What are you thinking, Mark? I had never thought about that. Yeah. How do you distinguish the two? Faith. Hmm? Is it a matter of faith? Yeah. Well, Moses begins to explain this in Deuteronomy. And, and it's a verse that every one of you knows. Uh, hero Israel! The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So, what about those who don't? They're not Israel. They're not part of the covenant. They, they have forfeited the covenant. Um, there's one, there, there, there's one way to forfeit the covenant that's given in Genesis 17. Uh, anytime you have a son and you don't circumcise the son, your son is cut off from among his people. Yes? Are you with me here? So he forfeits his portion in the fulfillment of the promises of God. But Deuteronomy 10.16 explains what circumcision means. Um... Deuteronomy 10 is part of a very important passage of Scripture. I'll be dealing with this next Wednesday night in that Wednesday night study. Um, In 6, you get the Great Commandment. But from there through chapter 11, you get an explanation of what the Great Commandment means. And 10.16 is in that passage. So what's the point? Well, loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is what a circumcised heart is being circumcised in flesh but not in heart. Look at Romans 4 right quick because he raises this same issue in Romans 4 um, verse 9 This blessedness then, is it upon the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision? For we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it accounted? In, In circumcision or in uncircumcision? Well, Genesis fifteen is two chapters before seventeen, so he was still uncircumcised when when that was given. So he's uncircumcision, um, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, and he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the right of, of faith righteousness, which he had in uncircumcision, so that he might be the father of all who believe. So, what is the significance? of Deuteronomy 10:16 Circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked anymore. It's what loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is. And furthermore, as we'll argue in chapter 10, that's what Paul says faith is. Are you with me? So so the issue is that to be circumcised in flesh only does not inherently make you an heir of the covenant. It has to have the, it's, it's like baptism. Baptism is of no consequence unless there's faith involved. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's just getting wet unless there's faith involved. Yeah. So whatever your view of the role of baptism in salvation, mm-hmm. that, that, that has to be there, whatever else you say. Uh, the, the issue then is simply to be circumcised in the flesh. Every, um, no, that's, yeah, yeah, every one of the men who died um, in uh, at Kadesh Barnea after Kadesh Barnea, every one of them came out of Egypt, and they were all circumcised. They, what, they died without receiving the promises. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So they lose their part in the fulfillment of the covenant. It's to their sons, who are circumcised, <laughs> after they get into the land. This is a terrible military move. You you get, you get cross a major barrier to get into the land that you're going to attack, and then you carry out a surgical procedure that's going to disable your army for about four days. What a brilliant move. The Lord is a very bad general. <laughs> the, so, so the point, folks, is this, that... Uh, the, uh, that circumcision is profitable if you understand what it means and you, you live in light of prayer. Same thing. Baptism is profitable if you understand what it means and you live in light of that meaning. So, um, verse uh, 5, um, verse uh, 6, rather, um, it is not as if the, the word of God has failed. So Romans eleven six, 6 the word of God has not failed Israel failed because they as a people group not, not as all individuals but as a people group they basically rejected the messiahship of Jesus and his, and his work um, for not all who are of Israel are Israel he's not saying here that there are Gentiles who are Israel He's saying that those descended from Israel, Jacob, are not all Israel. Um, Nor is the seed of nor are all the children the seed of Abraham. And he's now going to illustrate that point. Um, uh, That is, not the children of the flesh are the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as the seed. So this is, now he's going to raise the issue of of Jacob and Esau. So, um, uh, verse uh, 9. For the word of the promise is this. At a certain time, I will come and Sarah shall have a child, have a son. Is that son Esau? No. No. I'm sorry, Ishmael. I'm still getting Esau into the mix here. Is that son Ishmael? No. Who is that son? Did he have any other sons by Sarah? No. Not that we know of. So, the only one who gets the promise is Isaac. Does that mean that Esau has no hope? You mean Ishmael? Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Ishmael has no hope. <laughs> I've got this in my mind; I can't get it out. Yeah, is, is, does Ishmael have any hope spiritually? If he adopts the, if he adopts the faith of his father, then he has hope. If he rejects the faith of his father, he has no hope. But in Deuteronomy two, one in Deuteronomy one. When Israel is on their way to Canaan, God says, uh, don't attack your brother Esau. Leave them alone. Don't take food from them. Don't do anything. You leave them alone. For I have given the land to the sons of Esau. And he does the same thing with Moab and Ammon, who are both descendants of Lot. Family loyalty is critical. And so God maintains that loyalty when Esau, Moab, and Ammon don't. Are you with me here? Yeah. So so God destroys. mm -hmm. So the 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 point is then that in the generation when of Abraham, in his in the second generation there are two boys, only one is the seed. But that doesn't mean the other has no hope. But the line of the promise is through the seed. So, verse 14. Let's get on to verse 14 then. What shall we say then? Um, Verse 13, as it is written... um, I'm sorry, we didn't even look at verse 12, did we? Not by works, but by him who calls, it was said, um, to her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now that's pretty strong language for us. a man who has two wives and who favors the one and, and takes care of the other one, but he favors the one over the other, can be said to love the one and hate the other. It's not, a, it's not hate in the same way that we think of hate necessarily. Um, prefer. Prefer. Um, and, and Sarah and her line are the ones who get the promise. This doesn't mean there is no hope for Esau and his descendants. It just means... And by the way, in Genesis, when you get the genealogy of, of Esau, he's got more descendants than, than Jacob does, and he already has kings in his line. Yeah. They had all these people, the Moabites, all these people, they had the choice. Yeah. If they wanted to tell Israel, we want to worship Yahweh, like you. Yeah. they had the choice. Yeah. So uh, he goes on then... Uh, uh, verse 14 what shall we say then is there, inju- there isn't injustice with God is there and we have to answer no why do we have to answer no because God is holy yes but God is the definition of righteousness or justice um, all that God's, God does is just folks if, if I define justice then God is unjust But if God defines justice, then everything he does has to be just. Um, What then shall we say? There's not injustice with God, is there? Of course not. For he says to Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Let me stop here. That's a quotation from Exodus 33. And the word that's translated, I will show mercy, in Exodus 33, in, from from Hebrew into Greek, is the word uh, in Hebrew, hanan, um, an example of the meaning of the word. It's often in, it, helpful in doing a word study. We've talked about word studies, not very much but it's been mentioned a few times. In doing word studies, one of the things that's helpful to do for theological terms, if you can find that word used in a non-theological sense, yes. then it's really helpful in understanding the word. There's a noun that comes from Hanan, the word is hein. Uh It occurs twice, and, and from that word comes an adverb, chenom. Can you hear the similarity? Hanan, Hain, Yeah, all right. Um, It occurs twice in Job 1 and 2. Um, Is it twice? Oh, yes, it does occur twice. Um, In Job 1, the the accuser uses it. Um, uh, Does Job fear God? What comes next, do you recall? For nothing. What does "for nothing" mean in that context? You put a hedge around everything he does. Uh, everything is he turns his hand to, prospers. So does God show, fear fear God? Uh, does Job fear God for nothing? What does "for nothing" mean there? He doesn't God's have a reason to say, say again. That God's given him everything. Yeah, that he doesn't have a reason to You buy his worship. Um, then Job two. Uh, when the accuser raises job up before god again at some period later um, god says to job but you incited me against him for nothing what does for nothing mean there to ruin him without a cause is the idea there was no cause in job this is our concept of grace. God's, God does, gives grace to us with no cause in ourselves and with no payment from us. Be reproach and be questioning. Yeah, so the issue here in verse 15, I will show grace to whom I will show grace. This is translation Greek because it's, it's, it's quoting Exodus. So I can I can go back to Hebrew and, and figure out what it says there. I will show grace to whom I will show grace, and I will show mercy, compassion, to whom I will show compassion. What's he saying? It's my choice. Yeah? Can you say any more about that? It doesn't It's not based on what anybody does. It's yeah. based on... Is God the only person... In all existence, who has no right to uh, advantage one and not another? Do you give? <laughs> do you give to every cause that comes through your email and your mail? No. No. You exercise that right. Is it because you're unjust? The ones who don't get my money might think so. You might think so, but. Is it because you're unjust? No. no, no. Because I, I don't have the resources to give to every goal, so I have to choose the goals that I want to support. Yes? Yeah. Well, God has the resources to give to every need. Yes? Mm-hmm. But if you can choose, does God also have that right to choose? Oh, God, not creation. If God is doing what I think he's doing in this creation, uh, he's a wise person, yes? How wise is he? All wise. All wise, All wise. infinitely wise. Yes. Um, then he's chosen a plan that he's fulfilling in this creation. Would you grant that? Yes. There's some, some plan. Mm-hmm. What is his plan? What, what does this creation help him to, to accomplish? Well, one of the goals of any plan that God has must be to glorify himself. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Because any any anything that's infinitely perfect ought to expose that perfection as widely and as, as clearly as possible. Yes? Does that make sense? Right? To everything in existence. Yeah. yeah. So what does this creation, everything you know about Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, um, what does this creation have in it that makes it possible for God to reveal that he couldn't reveal any other way well he could reveal himself in other many other ways and probably has you know, worship he gets from the angels they're not of this creation the Holy Spirit's always around what about grace? I think we are told, are we not, in Peter, that the angels long to understand what this thing is that we are experiencing. The angels don't know grace. Their creation didn't include grace. Whatever that creation was and whatever the course of that era was or is, Uh, they don't don't understand grace. Why would God knowingly create a pair of, of, of humans who are going to sin nearly immediately unless his goal is to reveal grace on this earth does this make sense to you? Yes. but if you're, if, you're re- if you're revealing grace there, there are a couple of things you have to understand if everyone got grace equally then we would know it was grace because God says well that was grace <laughs> well we wouldn't know what we actually deserved Paul says we're going to judge the nations in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, What would be the purpose of our judging the nations? I have no idea. I don't know whether to take that in an Old Testament or a New Testament sense. Since it's a New Testament passage, I think it's probably a New Testament sense. The implication of that is, in some way, we're going to be involved in judging the sinfulness of the nations of of the world. Uh, So I have this notion which is probably wrong but if you get to heaven first uh, and you find out it's it, I was wrong you'll say well he said he was partly wrong but <laughs> uh, um, I have this notion that each of us will have our own courtroom this is completely out of character for first century jurisprudence so it's it's clearly wrong the way I'm setting it up but let's let's suppose that each one of us has our own courtroom and and sinners are lined up we have a docket that we have to <laughs> carry out and so the first one comes in and lo and behold he sinned exactly the way I did and I and I have to um, pass the, the judgment and the sentence I had to have to adju- adjudicate the case guilty and here's your sentence the second guy comes in and he sinned exactly as, as I sinned the third and the fourth and the ten millionth Comes in, and I have to, and I begin to realize what it is Jesus did to pay for my sin. Do you follow? And seeing what, what I deserve, finally, um, I, I know what I deserve, but I don't understand what I deserve. So I have this notion that, um, in the in our resurrection, when the kingdom comes and the judgment of the nations comes. We will see what we deserved, finally and fully, um, and then we will have our first real, serious, significant understanding of grace. Today we're just scratching at the edges. Um, so it's it's one thirty. So I suppose we ought to stop here. Um, God seems to think that He has. Let me let me finish down to verse 18 at least. God seems to think that he has the right to dispose of his benefits the way he wants to. So, verse 18, so then whom he wishes, whom he wills, he shows grace to. Whom he wills, he hardens. Am I better as a person apart from the grace of God, am I better than the guy next to me who sins exactly the way I do? No. Then why am I a recipient of grace? Because God willed it. Yeah. Does God have the right to dispense of His blessings the way He wishes? Is He unjust when He does that? No. Then I cannot raise objections to this passage let's stop here we'll pick it up at verse nineteen next week our verses fifteen and eighteen um, just another way of saying what he says in verse eleven yeah okay. yeah he's repeating this because we we simply do not get grace uh, we are so I still don't get it acculturated to works um Last Sunday, I, do you mind taking a, a few more minutes here? Yeah, Last Sunday, I was going to do uh, Colossians chapter two. There was a man sitting in the front row, uh, an older man. He was a um, I forget. He, he was a, a an NCO who stayed for twenty years and maybe longer in the military. I forget which branch. It might have been Marines, but. Uh, He said, in in a town where they lived in Tyler, Texas, there was a pastor who was a young man uh, who was doing a good job pastoring the church. It was not the church he attended, but recently he found out that the man took his life. And uh, he said, how can a man do that? And I didn't understand his question entirely. His son, his grandson, is uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and he clarified the question for me because he just can't even imagine why anyone would take his own life. But um, I was thinking about that question again today, this morning, and pondering it, and there are sins that we commit that we cannot escape. They will not, es- they will not let us go. We are even, even when we have done everything we know to deal with the sin, we're confronted by it on, on a daily basis. Um, I have to have a way of cleansing my conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Hebrews talks about. And I do have a way of doing that, Hebrews teaches. And I spent the whole hour of the class talking about that. We didn't even get to Colossians. Um, but uh, uh, understanding the conscience and guilt and how guilt works, guilt... Has two subcategories. One is objective guilt—the objective reality of my sin and the objective reality of what I owe for that sin. The other is object—a subjective guilt, my own feelings of guilt. And for years, uh, teaching Bible as as a seminary student, and later teaching Bible, I. I lived with a defiled conscience nearly every day of my life and contemplated suicide constantly. Um, it was in the course of of a day over at the old campus on Union uh, um, where I was teaching Hebrews and I was reading that passage in Hebrews 9 and I suddenly realized what that meant. And I, this was in 1985 or so. And, and I had started studying Hebrews and Greek in about 1967. <laughs> uh, and I didn't understand it. I was trying to understand it, but I couldn't. Um, but I found there the, 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 the resolution. Most Christians are, not, are taught that there is a ritual you must go through to get your sins forgiven. Um, and part of that ritual is confession. I don't think anything in Scripture says that. I know First John 1, 9, but I don't think it says that. Um, what, what, the, the great question then is, did I confess the right sin? Or, enough. or did I confess enough? Or was I truly repentant? I feel bad, but is that true repentance? And, and all those questions arise and haunt when you're living by that. Um, for uh, uh, a Holy Spirit book. Yeah, pardon? That belief? Yeah, holding on to that course of thought about how to deal with your sin. Um, (laughs) Folks, we are cleansed. We have the right to a clean conscience, and you have the right, upon being aware that you have sinned, to claim the cleansing of the body of, of the blood of Christ. And you don't have to agree with God about anything. All you have to have, say is, "God, I, I." You don't even have to say. All you have to do is trust that Jesus' blood does your con- does cleanse your conscience, and then refuse to listen to your conscience because you have to ask the question. Which is more authoritative, the word of God or my conscience? And which is more powerful, my sin or the blood of Christ? And if I decide that the word of God and, and the blood of Christ are more authoritative and more powerful, then I've got to quit listening to my conscience. Do you follow this? And this is what this poor man, uh, the young man who com- who committed suicide, was facing. There was, there was something that was right before his eyes and he couldn't didn't know how to get rid of it and all of the training he had had it had not given him any any relief any way to get to it mm-hmm. so what we're what we're dealing with here is a god whose grace and mercy has he has given to us and then we live in poverty spiritually we, we must learn to live in the in the wealth that Jesus has given so and yeah, that nails down what you've been trying to get across to us. The time, yeah, putting the cart before the horse uh-huh. as far as obedience. That's right. Yeah, and one of the men last night said, "Well, are you just doing away with obedience?" No, I said, "I'm putting the, in, putting it in its right place. It's uh, the loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength has to come first, and then the obedience will follow." So, all right. Well, I'll see you next week.